Well, welcome again, Heights Baptist Church. Good to see all of you here. We've already, of course, been worshiping together for about 30 minutes now. And now we have our Midlothian campus joining us. Y'all say hello to them. Just a big hearty hello. They're with us now, and it's exciting. You know, today, they, they've been meeting for a couple of weeks. Today is the first day they're doing two services out there. Uh, they did 8.30 and 10 o'clock, getting ready for uh, next week, Easter. They're just really doing everything they can to, to pull that together and to get it going. So much to learn to make two services happen. We've been doing three services for years, and we still haven't figured it out. But uh, I know they will out there in Midlothian. You know, to think all they're doing to make today happen, and on top of that, we have, we have Lord's Supper. Uh, as you can might imagine, folks, our deacons, it's hard. It's, a, it's kind of a stressful morning for them. It's a, it's a lot of work to get Lord's Supper done for, for a couple thousand people over the course of three hours. And man, I look down here and we've got all these deacons out there in Midlothian. They just have two, David Head and Mark Herndon trying to make all this happen. Well, they've got a third, Bob Ham, but that doesn't really count, does it? He's... <laughs> No, I, I get to say that to Bob because Bob's a big man. I wouldn't say that unless Bob was on the other side of town. Uh, it's my only chance to take a shot at him. But we're sure glad you guys are with us and, and, and joining us together all as we fellowship now and, and come to this table. Think about, you know, when Jesus said we come to this table, folks, we come as a family. And we come in love. Now, we're a family all right here in this room, right? But, but you know what? There's already been a family that's had the Lord's Supper at, at 825. And there's an hour after you. And now, of course, two hours going on at Midlothian. And while we might be at different hours and even in different rooms... Man, how important that as I come to this table, I'm thinking about not only everybody around me, but everybody in this church. Because I do want to come here in love with them all. In unity with them all. You can't come to this table harboring problems inside the family. Amen? So we, we want to deal with that this morning as we, as we come to this table. You know, we suffer because of each other sometimes. And certainly we suffer just simply because of the, the world that we live in. You know, there is little more that causes us to doubt God. There is little more that maybe makes us feel more abandoned by God than suffering. Now, our Bible teaches us that God is good and that God is all-powerful. And, and we believe that, and yet then all of a sudden when we've got evil and suffering going on around us, that seems to challenge that. I mean, if God is good, then why does He let evil and suffering go on? Unless, unless He's not all-powerful, unless He just can't do anything to stop it. Or maybe God's all-powerful, he could stop it, he's just not good. And he lets it go on. And, and so for some, the presence of evil, the presence of suffering, kind of serves as a trump card to this idea that there is a good and all-powerful God. Maybe that's why this is the very first issue that God deals with in the Bible. The very first issue. You know, say, wait a minute. I, I thought creation was the first issue. Well, you know, if you open up your Bible, first book in there is Genesis, right? And for good reason, the first three words, four, four words, in the beginning. Yeah, Genesis is about the beginning. In Genesis, we find out where, where the earth came from and where man came from. And you don't have to go far in Genesis. You get to chapter 3 and you find out where evil and suffering came from. We find out where Israel comes from. Man, Genesis gives us the beginning. It is the foundation for literally everything else that we're going to read in the Bible. 
But Genesis actually is not the first book written. Thematically, it is in the exact right spot, first book in the Bible. But as far as chronology, as far as the oldest book written, Job. Job is the first book written in the Bible. And it is almost singular in its theme. Where is God in the midst of suffering? Now, we're not, we're not studying Job today. We're not looking at Job today. But there are some interesting things there. It's kind of hard not to just walk away from Job and, and mention some of the things he points out. Man, when you think about the evil and suffering on our planet, when you think about some of the things that humanity has endured or, or maybe you have endured, man, Job shows us we've actually never experienced how bad evil can be and how far suffering can go. God actually does limit it. He puts, he puts boundaries on what evil can do and, and where it can go. So we learn that. We also see God give a response because when we're suffering, we want to know, God, where are you and what are you doing? And Job asks that. He asks that chapter after chapter after chapter. And we are really right up on the very end of this book called Job when God finally shows up and speaks. And, and Job all but says, okay, answer my question. How does these kinds of things happen to a good person, to a, to a person who loves you, to a person who's trying to follow you? And shockingly, God says, I'm, I'm not going to answer your question. You don't have the intellectual, historical, or spiritual capacity to evaluate me. You don't have the capacity to process the answer. What you do have the capacity to do is trust me. Now, it kind of goes without saying that there's going to be some people that are going to find that a little bit of an, of an unsatisfying answer. That, that's, not going to, that's not going to work for them. Now, as we do open our Bible, we, we do see God addressing this. We, we turn to Genesis. And by chapter 3, we see where evil and suffering comes from. And guess what, folks? It doesn't come from God. God didn't create evil and suffering. God didn't send evil and suffering. We brought that into the world by our rebellion against Him. Evil and suffering is not the product of God's inability to protect us or to care for us, but rather it is the product of our rebellion against God and His ways. We brought the suffering into this world. Now, okay, you say, well, okay, fine, we brought it here. But still, you're saying there's a good and all-powerful God. Why doesn't he just get rid of it? Because, folks, for God to eradicate evil and suffering, he'd have to eradicate you. He'd have to get rid of you. He'd have to get rid of me. You see, God in his justice is going to deal with evil. There is going to be a consequence for evil. That is going to be brought to bear. But God in His grace has a timing and has a way that that is going to happen. And between now and that time, He's rescuing you. Because you are the consequence. You are what needs to be dealt with. And folks, you and I cannot pay the price of the sin we've run up. We can't afford that price tag. And so God enters this world in the person of Jesus to pay that price for you and for me. And that's a crazy thought. God pays the price for our rebelling against Him, for our rejecting Him. 
When you look at Jesus, you are looking at the suffering of God. God doesn't deserve suffering. You and I deserve the suffering, not God. Now, folks, let me be be clear there. When I say you deserve the suffering, you know, I'm not saying that you as an individual, you deserve cancer. You you deserve that lost job. Oh, oh, you deserve to be abandoned and and rejected by people who should love you. I'm I'm not pointing out any one individual and saying you deserve that event or that activity. What I am saying is that in a world where you and I have said, I'm God and I'm going to live the way I want. And I would imagine right now at least a few of you want to shoot your hand up and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Stop. I never, I've never said those words. Oh, folks, it's not an issue if you've ever said those words. The issue is how many times you said them in the last seven days. Every single time we sin. That's right, the little ones. Oh, this doesn't bother anybody. This doesn't hurt anybody. The private sins, every time we sin, we're basically looking at God saying, I'm in control, I'll do this the way I want to do it. So I will lie, I will lust, I will steal, I will cheat, I will be greedy, I will be angry, I will be impatient, because that will get me the life I want. That's what I've decided. And folks, in a world where you and me and seven billion other people are saying that, guess what comes? It's evil and suffering that's the product of that mentality. And Jesus steps into that world. Let me say it again. When you look at Jesus, you look at the suffering of God. We've seen Jesus. We've been looking at him, haven't we, these last couple weeks? We've seen him as the son of God, his authority and his power. Jesus doesn't check in with us to get the agenda for the day, although we tend to treat him that way. Rather, we check in with him to get the agenda for the day. We've seen him as the Lamb of God. Jesus represents God's love, God's provision, God's forgiveness of you and me. We've seen him as the purpose of God. And as the purpose of God, our purpose. And as our purpose, the answer in this good news, the answer to every question we've ever asked, the answer to every problem we're trying to work through, the answer is Jesus. And today, we see him as the suffering of God. When you look at Jesus... You look at God's suffering. That's important because when we're hurting, don't you want to know if somebody understands? Don't you want to know if somebody cares? Don't you want to know if somebody can do something about it? Folks, in Jesus, we see God caring, we see God understanding, and we see God doing something about it. How have you suffered? Did Jesus suffer any less? Jesus was lied about, mistreated, misquoted, misrepresented. He had siblings that rejected him. He had friends that abandoned him. He had enemies that continually and constantly attacked him. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was arrested. He was tortured. And he was executed like a criminal. Because he had done what? And now we're here today to remember, right? That's what we do at the Lord's table. We remember, isn't that what Jesus said? I want you to do this in remembrance. I want you to remember. And while many of us are familiar with this, I just kind of want to remind us. Let's kind of remember what went on that day. I want to read just a couple of paragraphs about that torture and about the crucifixion. This comes from a book written by Chuck Swindoll, very simply titled Jesus. He has two full chapters. So as you're hearing what I'm reading, don't, don't, 
think you're getting the extent of what Jesus went through. You're getting a couple of paragraphs out of two solid chapters that describe what Jesus went through from Thursday night through his death on Friday. It says here in this scourging involved the use of a flagrum, a whip with long leather tails. The leather straps could be merely knotted or if the lictor a trained expert in the art of torture, wanted to inflict more damage, he could choose one with small metal weights or even bits of sheep bone braided into the straps. The iron balls would cause deep contusions and the leather thongs and sheep bones would cut into the skin and subcutaneous tissues. Then as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. According to one physician, the scourging typically resulted in rib fractures, severe lung bruises and lacerations with bleeding into the chest cavity and partial or complete collapse of the lung. The Romans were experts in the art of torture and knew exactly how to beat a man within an inch of his life. The procedure usually sent the victim into shock in less than five minutes and then took months to heal. As the lictor chained Jesus' wrist to either side of the low wooden pillar, the entire cohort in the garrison filled the gallery to become a part of the humiliating spectacle. They jeered and hurled insults as the lictor chose his instrument, drew back and snapped the weighted leather tails across Jesus' back. Now Jewish scourging limited the number of blows to 39 and restricted the area to the back and to the shoulders. But Roman lictors were not given any rules. Backs, legs, buttocks, chest, abdomen, face. No part of the body was off limits. And the beating could continue as long as everyone was entertained. And if the victim passed out, the lictor waited until he was conscious again before resuming the sadistic torture. Finally, they beat him with their fist and shamelessly spewed their phlegm in his face before sending him back to Pilate, bleeding and trembling from shock, barely able to stand by his own strength and still wearing his dreadful crown of thorns. Jumping ahead to the next chapter. The soldiers took took Jesus to Golgotha and initiated the gruesome ritual which began with giving the victim a mild painkiller. This was not an act of mercy. The process of nailing a person's limbs to a wooden beam is just easier if he's drugged. Jesus refused the medicine, probably preferring to remain completely lucid during his ordeal. One soldier lay across his chest and another across his legs, while two others stretched out his arms and drove a five-inch long, three-eighths inch square nail through each hand. They bent his knees, placed his feet flat against the stipes, and drove a nail through each foot. The soldiers then tilted the cross up and guided the base into a hole. The cross suddenly stood vertical and then fell to the bottom with a jarring thud as they drove wedges between the beam and the sides of the hole to keep the cross firmly upright. Jesus offered a quiet prayer. You ever suffered at the hands of somebody else? Boy, if you remember that moment, if you could just kind of remember when that, when that moment hit its height, when, when you were hurting the most from what that person had done or was doing, can you imagine right in the midst of that, trying to pray this prayer that Jesus prayed? 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The religious leaders continued their taunts. Oh, he trusts in God. Oh, let God rest. Oh, he's the son of God. Oh, he's God favored. Well, where's God now? Why, why doesn't God just come take him off the cross? At about noon, roughly three hours after the crucifixion began, and when the sun, sh- sun should have been high overhead, an eerie darkness enveloped the entire region until three in the afternoon. As the darkness began to lift, Jesus drew a deep breath and shouted in Aramaic, his native tongue, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's just a couple of chapters. That's just a couple of glimpses at what went on those, that 24-hour time period. I think it's fair to say that, that Jesus suffered the full extent of what anybody ever has suffered physically. You, you can't possibly have anybody suffer worse physically because at some point we just die, right? I mean, whatever the suffering is, whatever we've done to other humans, I mean, at some point you just give out and die. So we can certainly see that, that Jesus suffered physically to about the fullest extent that the human body can endure. But we saw he also suffered relationally, emotionally, mentally as as he was mocked, as he was taunted, as he was rejected, as he was hit and spit on. For for doing what? Loving? Trying to do good? And we see that he suffered spiritually. Did you know that you and I have never actually been abandoned by God? That's not to say that you and I at times didn't feel abandoned by God. In a certain moment, we couldn't, we couldn't possibly see where He could be or, or how this could be going on, and we just assumed. It just felt like we'd been abandoned. You've never been abandoned. But in this moment right here, when, when Jesus says, God, where are you? You've, ab- you've abandoned me. There is a strange thing happening here in all of eternity. I'm not sure I understand it or can explain it theologically as there appears to be almost a, a schism in the Holy Trinity. Because in this moment right here, Jesus has taken on all of your sins and my sins, all of the sins in the world. At this moment, he could not possibly represent more ugliness, more filth, and more evil. And God in his holiness, God in his purity, has to turn away. You and I don't understand that. You know why? We'd say, well, why? It's his own son. Why can't God just, you know, be okay with it? Why can't God, you know, kind of... You know why? Because we have no concept of purity. If purity mixes with the smallest amount of impurity, it's no longer pure anymore. So God in his purity, God in his holiness, literally backed away and turned away from his own son as His Son carried your sins and the consequence of them. Now our message today, folks, is not actually about suffering, not not our suffering. 
It's not about why, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering in the world? I actually believe the Scripture answers every question we need to understand about that. It explains where it came from and why it's here and why God is allowing it for this time and where God is in the midst of that and how God's going to deal with that and, and even where you and I as followers can find a sense of purpose in it. I believe the Bible gives us everything we need to hold on to God in the midst of suffering. But we're not here today to remember remember and think on our suffering. We're here today to remember he suffered. And it did, he didn't suffer because of his negligence. He didn't suffer because of his ignorance. He didn't suffer because of his wrong. He suffered because of mine. He suffered because of yours. And when we say that that Jesus suffered. Please, please don't picture Jesus, you know, packing up his bags. He's leaving heaven and he's, he's coming to earth. And man, he is going to come down here and do what he can to get us right. Boy, he's going to love on us and do good among us and show us God and show us the good way. And boy, in the midst of doing that, evil just rose up and, and overwhelmed him and he had to succumb to it. Or he, he went with a plan B and said, okay, I'll do it this way. No, folks, it was always God's intention to take evil head on, to take the consequences of your evil head on himself. That's strange, isn't it? You know, one of the difficulties in trying to witness with a Muslim is they can't process the concept of a God who suffers. That's, that's stupid. Do, do I want a God that can be beat up? Do, do I want a God that can be nailed to a cross and this is supposed to somehow do something for me 2,000 years later? We don't want this. That's not just Muslims who have a hard time understanding we have a hard time understanding. Why would God do this? Why would it be this way? God knows we wouldn't get it. And so what God did is he backed way up in time. And he began to prophesy. He began to describe what was going to happen in that moment. So that when it happened, we wouldn't miss it. So that when it happened, we wouldn't think God was putting some kind of spin on it. Boy, we're experts at that, right? Putting spin on our wrong, putting spin on our sin. Oh, this is just God putting some kind of spin. You know, I mean, he lost, right? The Jews, the Romans, they got him. He lost. No, God says, no, when you see that happening, that's exactly what I planned. Listen to a couple passages, folks. You know, the book you and I hold in our hands called the Bible, there's no book like it. It, it is God's Word, and, and there's a variety of things to me that prove that, but surely one of them is prophecy. God describing in great detail the future. In this book, there's over 60 major prophecies that describe in great detail the birth, the life, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God wanted to make sure, hey, listen, you're not going to get the idea of a suffering God. So let me describe it for you way back here so that when it happens, you don't miss it. Listen to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is written a thousand years before Jesus walked on this planet. This psalm is written hundreds of years before crucifixion even existed. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes that verse, I think, for two reasons. One, because that's what he was going through. Two, to alert you and me. Hey, God called this shot. 
You remember Psalm 22? He quotes that, and that takes everybody right back to what God said about this a thousand years earlier. Do not think that evil's winning the day. Do not think that evil's running away with this moment. We, the Holy Trinity, described this a thousand years ago. Listen to verse 6. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him if, he'd, if the Lord delights in him. Hey, that's, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? That's exactly what happened at the cross. Listen to verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Thousand years before Jesus walked on this earth, hundreds of years before crucifixion even existed. I can count all my bones. Interesting little statement. Just a statement meaning none of my bones are broken. That is an interesting prophecy because the way most crucifixions end is by breaking the legs of those who were on the cross. You see, while you were up, there was a very slow process of suffocating. When the Roman soldiers got tired of waiting on you to die, got tired of being out there, they would get a club and break your legs. You see, before the only way you could breathe was to push up on the nail in your foot. And as you got up, you could draw air and then you would sink back down. But obviously, when the legs were broken, you could no longer push up and you would begin to suffocate very quickly. Most who were hung on a cross had their legs broken. But God said a thousand years earlier, no, his hands and his feet will be pierced, but there will be... No broken bones. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That is exactly what the Roman soldiers did at the foot of the cross, isn't it? And don't you appreciate God saying, hey, listen, it's going to be so far from any concept of what a God would do. Let me tell you what it's going to look like before I even get there. And that's not the only place. There's lots of places. Let me just read one other. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is a prophet. This is being written 750 years before the cross. 750, that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it is. 750 years before it was written, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When you look at Jesus, you're looking at the suffering of God. As one from men whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't recognize him. We didn't acknowledge him. We did not respect Jesus for who he was. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... And can you imagine those wounds that were being laid on him and that scourging? Each stripe that opened up his body, each stripe that produced more and more blood, with his wounds we are healed. Verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked. You remember as he was executed, there was two thieves on each side of him. He was placed there in his death among the wicked. But then Isaiah goes on to say, and with a rich man in his death. How, how was Jesus with a rich man in his death? What does that mean? You remember the story, Joseph of Arimathea. A wealthy man went to Pilate after the crucifixion. 
the guy in the center, the guy named Jesus, he can have my tomb. He was with a rich man in his burial. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That verse could be read, and it was the will of the Father to crush his own son. Why? Why would he do that? So that you would not be. As we come to this table, Jesus says, I want you to remember. Remember what was endured. Remember the price that was paid. I want you to remember. That's the command. That's the only command as we come to this table. Remember. Let's pray.